Welcome to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with Sarah Blaze, the current CEO of Metro Vancouver Kink, an event producer who produces a lot of things, including West Coast Bound, where I'm going to be teaching in 2019, um, a pro-dom, and a person who is a parent, an educator, a writer who throws occasional sex parties, all kinds of things. Welcome. Thank you. Awesome. So today's session, we were going to focus more on kink and intimacy, and I'm interested if you find kinky sex to be more intimate than sex without kink. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I was expecting you to say yes. <laughs> I mean, I could elaborate on that. Would you like to elaborate uh, sure. on how kink augments intimacy? I find in non-kink relationships, there's uh-huh. so much like sex in the dark with a partner and missionary. And that is, that's like the main experience in non-kinky sex. I'm trying not to laugh but, because I don't want to yuck anyone's yum. <laughs> yeah, it's cool if that's your thing. If but people it's not, are into like missionary in the dark, that's great. Yeah. It's also not my thing. No, not mine either. Um, no, it's not. So, yes, kinky sex is definitely better. And it's, it's just because it spices things up and it can be different every time. And there's all kinds of different activities you can do. And, and anything's kinky. And, I, and that's, I think, what people don't really understand either is, like, they're already doing it. Yeah. They just don't call it the same thing we call it. Yeah. Like, even doing, like, a... We're not even talking about silk, silk tie as a blindfold. You're talking about, like, any kind of slightly deviant behavior. Yeah, like holding, holding your girlfriend's hands down. Totally. Or blindfolding is one of them. Mm-hmm. Or um, using Spanking sex toys. Yeah. People, people talk about that all the time as if, like, having sex doggy style just implies you're going to be slapping someone's ass. And yeah. Like, there's a there's a consent nightmare waiting right there. Yep. Or even anal sex is considered sure. can be considered kinky. It really depends on what totally. you're doing. Totally. And I, it depends on how necessary it is, I think, for you to get off. Just as an anal sex kinkster myself. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> See. For but, me, it's like almost a requirement. So it makes it really challenging when you're having a relationship and it's just penis and vagina sex. It's like this is great for you, and I'm totally cool with that. Just as long as we're really clear, this is for you because I don't want to feel ironically pressured to get off because that's very challenging for me from PIV. And it's the same for for me as a woman. Mm-hmm. Like PIV sex doesn't actually get me off. I, I need stimulation. Yep. And I mean, so much of sex is foreplay, and the yeah. foreplay is really where the kinky sex comes in because that's totally where you get all that that juice going and all the excitement going. <laughs> all that juice. Yes. And, you know, for the main event, and yeah. and and with kink sex doesn't even have to be the main event. Penetration right. doesn't have to be right. the end game. It can be the middle game or not part of the game at all. Yeah. And that's kind of what I think is really neat about it. Yeah. And you can obviously do other kinds of fun penetration too, like fisting, and you can do other kinds yeah. of penetration like pegging. Yeah. Toys, all sorts all of, kinds of things. All sorts of fun penetration. Mm-hmm. So for people listening in that may not understand some of those words, would you like to go into more detail explaining what pegging is? I feel like you'll have more passion for explaining this topic. Um, pegging is... Well, it's generally in my for me, pegging is strapping on a, a non-biological cock and using it to penetrate somebody in the ass. It's a very technical way of saying it, but essentially, it's anal sex with um for me as a female with a prosthetic dick. With a prosthetic dick, yeah. Like, like I was about to get trapped in language there, so thank you. Um, yeah, if it was bio penis and bio, like if it was bio penis, it would just be anal sex. But right. because we uh, incorporate a strap on, it's called pegging. Right. Not. And usually, it comes with the context of someone who's masculine gendered receiving it in the ass. Yes. That's what I've heard it used. I see. I like only that. I only ever use the term pegging in terms of my pronoun work, where I'm doing oh, it with a client. Because okay, because uh, when I'm pegging, 
Right. And, and I use that loosely in quotations with my partners. It's sex. It's intimacy. It's part right. of our. It's part of our sex. Um, if I were to say to my cisgendered male partner that um, I was pegging him, I think he'd be offended. Really? Actually. Because yeah, because then it removes the intimacy. That's what I'm doing for work. That's not what I'm doing as an interaction oh, with my partner. So you use the language to distance you from your pro-doming work. Yes. Fascinating, because I don't do pro-doming work. So for me, the idea of having my partner peg me just sounds intimate and loving and connective mm-hmm. and really like important with me it's i'm like i'm you peg at work i peg at work you have and sex I, with your I partners have sex at work. yeah sex at home great yeah. that's a cool distinction delineation do you find that kink is I'm, well, the next question is yeah. do you find that kink is all the sexual for you no it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be yeah um, i don't i don't find it is either and because it doesn't have to end in sex i mean right. but kink it can be erotic. Huge, and it's such a huge sure. word. Like it, it could be, it encompasses so many things. Sure. That it doesn't even have to include sex because it could be so many different things. Like an impact scene or hitting somebody with implements doesn't need to turn into sex. It can mm-hmm. just be a scene in itself. Uh, it, and, and so it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be sexual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you want to, again, talk a little more about what impact means in this context? Uh, so impact in this context means basically using things like floggers, which are long... Uh, strings of leather or different kinds of material and you use that to hit somebody and right like um, a bundle of a whole bunch of those yeah it could be anything really it could be socks it could be um leather it could be pipes it, like not just pipes but like <laughs> probably not <something laughs> i was thinking right? like wires <laughs> like, um, like pipe cleaners yeah it could be i mean if, sure. if you wanted to make something out of at home to you put an elastic that. band around 30 of them and wax for them sure with it. Or it could be like canes, like mm-hmm. uh, acrylic canes or I feel like there are bamboo. flogger makers somewhere that are, that are feeling like we're really not doing it justice. <laughs> no, probably not. Well, it's hard without pictures, right? The pictures right. makes it so much easier. Right. Um, and it, But you, you can use your fists, you can use your feet, you can use um, anything, yeah. your elbows to help hit people. Right. And it, it causes um, some, sometimes an erotic response and sometimes it doesn't. Some yeah. people eroticize the pain. Some people just enjoy the pain for the sake of pain. Um, some people just so like many sensual. Good motivation questions in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I don't want to cut you off. You were saying sometimes yeah, it's sensual. There's sometimes a lot of it's sensual, and and it can be it can be anything. And that often for for a lot of people in kinky who are kinky, including myself, that's often foreplay. Right. Um, but it doesn't have to be. It can be the be all and end all too. Because um, in in the kink scene, we do pick up play too, where you're basically playing with a stranger. You're right. giving them an experience, and then you're walking away from that person, and it doesn't have to result in sex. Sure, and I mean that depends on whether a person does pick up play. It depends mm-hmm. on how they negotiate that pick up play. Because I feel like pick up play is a really challenging thing to negotiate well. Yes. Um, especially including aftercare or in select situations, delegated aftercare. And again, we're getting into a lot of really advanced topics, yeah. um, which is great. I love getting into advanced topics, but then it's important to sort of talk about that. So maybe chat a little bit about aftercare and why that's important. Uh, so I don't do aftercare, so I'm probably not the right person to oh talk to you goodness, about aftercare. Okay, sure. um, I do it with one of my partners, but I do not do it for sure. pick-up play ever. Okay. Um, and I'm not... I'm not normal in that sense. Yeah. And, and that's okay. And I will not discredit people who do aftercare. They should sure. be doing aftercare. Sure. I don't do it because I'm an event provider. 90% of the time I'm playing at parties I'm hosting. And right. so, so you I, just don't have the time. So you end up negotiating some kind of delegated aftercare. Like, oh, yeah. I don't do aftercare. Are you okay with that? And the person yeah. says yes. Or they bring their own aftercare. Right. Um, the other reason is because I, for me and my partner, it's, it's occasionally kind of crossed into consent violation territory. I don't want to go with a stranger into a bed situation mm-hmm. where then they feel like they have the right to grope me or the ability to grope me or touch me inappropriately. Right. That's not okay. We 
when I do pickup play, I expect a distance between the two of us because I, it's not intimate. And so right. going into a bed makes it feel intimate, and I'm not prepared to do that with somebody. Right. I've also had really terrible experiences with aftercare where it went on for days, where they had this expectation that I had this oh, obligation to them uh, to manage their emotional responses right. for quite a while, and I just right. I won't manage that. And I don't expect, and so I should probably get... And we should back up a little bit. So in kink, sure. there is like two participants. There's a giver and a receiver, generally. Generally. And those people are generally referred to as tops and bottoms or dominant and submissives or master and slave. Sure, Each depending one, on a yeah. lot of other things. But I, I think it's a really good definition to say tops and bottoms for the giver for the, of a thing and a receiver. Yeah. And so in, in the case, for me, I'm generally a top, so I'm generally a giver. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also... You're also generally a dom. Yes, I'm also a dom. And for the distinction for people listening, um, it's a really hard one to define in terms of who's in control of what happens and what doesn't happen. That That's one that I've heard explained that I don't really like, the notion that doms are in control of what does happen and subs are in control of what doesn't. We, I don't think that's We talk true. at the Newbie Munch, mm-hmm. which is another term, <laughs> we talk about tops and bottoms being the giver and receiver of action. Yeah, that period. makes sense. Yeah, I like that. And then uh, dom and sub, is there's like a, an established relationship where, where there's a power, power exchange. Yeah. Um, so I am a dom and a top. However, I'm also a masochist, which means I enjoy receiving pain, so I'm... You might instruct a slave to, or, or a servant or a submissive or even just a bottom to just, hey, could you do these things for me? And in that sense, they wouldn't be a bottom anymore right. if they were... And my, my partner, my live-in partner, is a dominant as well. So mm-hmm. I bottom to my dominant partner, even though he's not right. my dominant Does that make sense? So you mean we you, have you bottom to one of your partners. Is that partner always a dominant for you? He's not a dominant, he's a top. Right. And I bottom. Right. Because there's no... Sometimes there's a power exchange, but it's not... But like, it's very minimal. It's, it's not enough that you would consider it like a dom-sub relationship. Yeah, because if I tried to be in control, I wouldn't work because I'm not controllable. Got you. <laughs> but I'm a masochist. I enjoy the sensation of pain. It turns right. me on. So he provides that, that for me. I want to say right. service, but then that's not the right word for that. Right. Um, but he provides me with, with me some, people, for me. some people do describe it as service topping if that person isn't getting their needs met mm-hmm. by topping. They're topping for someone else. Yeah. And so in terms of aftercare, that's mm-hmm. kind of where I digressed, digressed is that um, when I bottom, I don't want to receive aftercare because the kind of bottoming I do is like an ordeal situation. I want to be able to survive it. And right. so if I need aftercare after the fact, and I didn't really survive the ordeal that I put myself through because now I need like oh, interesting. head padding to like be okay with it, I want to know that I can walk away from it, be more powerful. For me, it makes me more right. powerful that I live through this, this situation. I, I, I mean, I feel the, the same way when I bottom. Yeah, um, so I'm, not, um, I'm not a masochist, but I will put myself in situations that are really uncomfortable and painful, by mm-hmm. which I mean kink scenes specifically. And yeah. for people listening, a scene is from when you start um, a negotiated kink activity to when you finish. Usually that's considered a scene. Some people consider the negotiation in advance part of the scene. Some people consider the aftercare, usually at the end, part of the scene. There's just varying definitions for the same idea that there's a discussion about what's going to happen, a thing happens, and then you make sure everyone's okay at the end. And sometimes, for some people like yourself, it's as simple as like, okay, that's the end of the scene. I'm going to leave now. I am leaving you now. Yeah. But for me, it it really is about surviving it. I want to know that I'm powerful enough to have put myself through something and survived it. Um, I also feel stronger from going through ideal situations. Um, so that's that's my kind of take on aftercare. Lots of people do aftercare because it's a way of reconnecting. Mm-hmm. Um, often when you do a scene 
and uh, the top has done something horrible to the bottom, mm -hmm. then they want to be able to kind of make sure they don't hate each other afterwards because yeah. sometimes it can cause those negative reactions. And so it's kind of just putting everything back together and making sure everybody's okay and yeah. making sure they're hydrated and make sure they're not going to faint. Whatever the, the sure. care is required um, is generally what aftercare is. Yeah, usually there's there's some form of bodily self-care, like you said, um, making sure they don't faint, making sure they get chocolate or, or something that has sugar in it, making yeah. sure they get hydrated. Yeah. I, I tend to think of it also as like restoring from a power dynamic. If you have a temporary power dynamic just for a scene where you're doing like dom sub stuff for one scene for yeah. like an evening for an hour or two, at the end of it, you might want to just touch base and be like, hey, like you're not going to try and be my dominant anymore. Like we're back to being like on equal footing. Yeah. Sometimes for me, I find that's what aftercare is yeah, for dom sure. sub stuff. That makes sense too. Yeah. Yeah. Did I answer, did I answer that? Yeah. Yes, you definitely did. Um, you mentioned a munch earlier. There's a newbie munch. Could you Could you talk about what that is oh so a munch is a gathering of people usually kink people to talk about who are like-minded people and they meet and have social conversations a newbie munch we host a couple times a month and it basically is an introduction to the local kink scene so they can kind of get a feel for the events that happen in vancouver we talk a lot a bit about a lot about um different terminology like we're kind of doing here mm -hmm. uh cover a bunch of those topics yeah. talk about really important kind of high level stuff like consent and negotiation and awesome. how to how to learn care safely in the environment and get to know people and and have the best experience in the kink community as possible mm -hmm. And I find a lot of people do kind of throw caution to the wind when they finally get involved in kink because there usually is a lot of shame or a lot of baggage preventing you from exploring it. Yeah. So when you finally make that leap of, okay, fuck it, I'm finally going to go and do this thing, I'm going to explore this thing, there's often a lot of, a lot of um, resistance to any kind of safety measure yeah. because you're already doing something so far off in left field how is that any more dangerous or how is that any less dangerous than meeting a man alone in his private residence that you don't know? Yeah. Well, it's actually a lot safer to do kink in a you know public setting than it is to go and do something that's, I think most people who are socialized as women know is a high-risk behavior. So you can kind of ignore the 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 danger factors all those normal warning lights going off are so easy to ignore because all of the social ones are going off telling you you shouldn't even be doing this thing to begin with yeah yeah so it is really important to highlight what you were saying that, that to learn how to do this safely and and people get really excited um, because they, it's this thing they've thought about or that they've just discovered, and all of a sudden they must try all the things right now with all the people immediately because that's because they must do it all right now, and it's it's really hard to try and get them to pace themselves and like look, you have the rest of your life to figure this stuff out and play with this stuff. Yeah. You don't have to do it all today, and and that's where the safety issue definitely comes in. Yeah, and the bottom frenzy, as it's colloquially known in the scene, that people go into when they first start or top frenzy. I yeah. mean, really, just like kink frenzy. Yeah. It's newbie frenzy, pretty if you much. Will. Yeah. Um, it, it is incredibly dangerous, and often you're working with people that are just discovering this element of their sexuality. And while it may matter whether they're 38 or or you know 20, it doesn't always matter. And sometimes, you know, the older individuals will still have just as much of a play with all the people's reaction. Other times, you are dealing with someone that maybe doesn't have as much life experience, and trying to be patient and pace themselves for something like that may be challenging for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Mm hmm good answers hmm. you also mentioned sm i was wondering if you wanted to touch on since we talked about impact play um on like the bdds sm so sm uh, refers to sadism and masochism essentially sadism sadism is the 
enjoyment of giving pain and masochism is the enjoyment of receiving pain which is sometimes sexual and sometimes not yeah yeah and it doesn't always have to be it usually corresponds that bottoms or submissives are masochistic Mm -hmm. and doms or tops are sadistic but not always they don't always correlate they can switch or be not either absolutely people can be sadomasochists and enjoy both sides yeah and you can have individuals that are into topping or bottoming as sense tops that are really just about intimacy yeah. and they aren't pursuing it for any sadomasochistic reasons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is why BDSM is such an umbrella term because it's mm-hmm. supposed to cover and does cover almost everything that can possibly happen in the kink scene. Right. In fact, I think they, that kink is almost a slightly bigger umbrella because I think it's a little more forgiving in terms of, of what might qualify as kink, whereas BDSM has more of, I think, a specific definition. True, yeah. Even though it's still, like, a definition, which is a fam- which is three families of definitions, yeah. it's still... <laughs> yeah. It's still somehow more specific than kink, which yeah. seems to be more of a catch-all. It is a catch-all, yeah, and I think that's why we use it so colloquially. Yeah, it, it tends to catch fetishes as well. Yeah. Which sort of fall into BDSM, but they're almost grandfathered in, in a sense. Sometimes. Could, because there really isn't any room for fetishes other than rope and impact. I'm just trying to parse this in my head right now, and I can't think of be- bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, mm-hmm. or sadism and masochism expressly being fetishy. And it's sort of like, it's only BDSM if you're doing a fetish and you're doing something on that spectrum of six things. Yeah, I mean, a lot of fetishes generally come in with power dynamics, but not always. Mm -hmm. Like you talk about foot fetishes, for example, that generally has an overtone of submission, but not always. Right. It could just be kink and not BDSM. Yeah. And lots of people like to just dress up and that's that's fetish, but not necessarily BDSM. BDSM. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Lots of terms. So many terms. All (laughs) the terms. So hopefully we're not overwhelming you. I was going to ask more about intimacy and kink I, I literally wrote the question like this so so please don't get angry at me how does kink impact intimacy in your relationships <laughs> I don't know why I wrote Did the question wrote like, it wasn't on purpose that was like a legitimate <laughs> mistake how does it impact the intimacy I'm sorry if you could hear the pause while I rolled my eyes at my uh-huh. former self <laughs> um, it changes things in some ways uh i like punching my partners whereas if you didn't have (laughs) kink if there wasn't over yeah that um, wouldn't be acceptable (laughs) yeah basically wouldn't be good if i was you know walked up and punched him in the chest but in my relationship that's a sign of affection so your intimacy changes the way you do intimacy changes when you're dealing with ds um, that's taking dominance and dominance submission and, and ex- a power exchange like mm-hmm. some kind of power exchange yeah. you take away the privileges or the rights of one of your of your partner and that's kink and that intensifies your intimacy even though you're doing things that seem completely absurd absurd <laughs> yeah like in any other context seem like they might be abusive or they might be unhealthy or they might just not be good for folks yeah and then suddenly you're in the situation where someone has safety and good boundaries around exploring these really edgy things and all of a sudden you're doing this crazy master slave thing 24 7 kind of deal and figuring out how do you negotiate that consensually yeah and it 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 definitely changes the way you do things i think it changes the way that i perceive intimacy in relationships that's true too it's completely shifted my idea of what a relationship is and what intimacy is Mm -hmm. because it can be anything there's Intimate and intimacy, and I think it really changes the way you ha- you define relationships too, right? Mm-hmm. I have play partners that I'm 
that I am I'm connected to, but I, they're not my partners. They're not necessarily lovers, but, or they might be, but not in a sexual sense. Yeah, and so, but intimacy mm-hmm. is in every relationship. It just doesn't, it can just, it defines itself differently in every relationship. Yeah. When I was, I've had, I've owned a slave for six years. I released him a couple of years ago, but the entire time that I owned him, he was in chastity. So he wasn't, his, his penis was wow. locked up the entire time, 24-7. There was no release. I let him come maybe once every couple of months. Um, wow. And the rest of the time was just, so it's something I took away from him. We weren't ever sexual. Our relationship wasn't sexual, but there's still intimacy there. Uh, because, that, that just sounds incredibly intimate. Right? It, it's almost like by virtue of being asexual, it is a form of service. It is a form of submission. And and by extension of that, an incredible intimacy. Mm-hmm. Because my one of my biggest things, or my biggest kinks, is uh, somebody giving up their pleasure for mine. Interesting. Yeah. I can understand where that might come from. Seeing as in our previous conversation, we talked about Mormonism. <laughs> uh, yes. So that's, that's, that's a big kink for me. And, but, so intimacy plays out in, in all different kinds of ways in relationships. And it doesn't have to be simply about um, touch or sex. It just has right. to be about uh, the dynamic or the, or the um, content, the con- connection between two people. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I had questions. Now the questions have left me. I, you got me thinking about master-slave stuff and, and how all of the complexities around master-slave stuff, that's almost a podcast in and of itself. <clears throat> it is. I have, I have owned a slave before. That was an incredible growth experience for me, and I still very much love that human today. And they love me. And it's amazing to have a relationship that's no longer domestic. We don't live together. It's no longer sexual. We don't have sex. It's no longer even really kinky because we don't have, we certainly don't have a power dynamic anymore. And we don't do any kink activities. We're basically what most people would consider friends, but there's something about a master-slave connection that just fucking transcends everything. There's something about that intimacy that has never left my heart and never will. It's like there's something about what a slave gets to own that doesn't get talked about, that is just implicitly understood Mm -hmm. among masters. I'm like getting teary thinking about it. And it's it's interesting because I've owned several people over the course of my career as a dom, um, and they all still serve me. They're not collared to me anymore, but they all still yeah. serve me. It was it's interesting sometimes when I end up having three or four of them at my house at the same time, and I'm like, you know what, this isn't bad because there's I, and I don't mean that like a really, but like the fact that they still that we still have that connection, even though the yeah. the relationship or contract itself is over. Yeah, there's still that connection that they still have that need to to fill that role for me even though they have one of them has a new new mistress and new owner um the connection remains it doesn't it it just doesn't go away i often liken it to like when you love someone really deeply you may no longer be in a relationship with that person but you don't you don't i I find that (laughs) and and i feel like i'm quoting Whoopi goldberg from tng here (laughs) she has that heart to heart with will wheaton um I shouldn't know that episode's named The Dauphin, but it is. <laughs> um, but she has this heart-to-heart where, and this actually was formative for me in my relationships. This one moment on television was actually one of two formative moments for me in relationships, and both of them were Star Trek. Oh, my God. I know. I'm such a nerd. So in TNG, this was the one moment, and it was where where essentially this boy, Wesley Crusher, is is... is reeling from a breakup and he's devastated because he was you know super in love with this person super fast because it was one of the first times if not the first time he's ever fallen in love so he just lost his nuts over it and was just like completely into this person 
And of course, it tragically ends and he can't be with this human. And he's sitting dejected. And of course, the bartender Guinan comes over and sits down and has this conversation. And he's, he's essentially expecting her to tell him it's all going to be okay. Like, it won't always hurt. And she basically says the opposite. She's like, no, it's always going to hurt. Like, and, and, and you're never going to love someone the same way. And he's totally shocked that she has just brought this essentially truth up. Mm-hmm. And she says, you love people differently. You know, you're going to love, you're going to go on and love again, sure, but you're never going to love them exactly the same way. And there was something about hearing that permission to have my feelings that just made so many things fall into place about love and relationships for me. And I think that's one of the reasons why polyamory was so natural for me was I had this implicit understanding from being eight years old. Mm -hmm. What a lucky find. And, and, you know, talking briefly about poly, because we kind of covered that before, but like, um, the one thing that my partner once said to me is that the the part of my heart that loves you is never going to love somebody else. Aw. And that brought me more comfort than I think he ever recognized because that means that whatever we share is unique. I can't be replaced because what we have is not replaceable. Right. It, the, you can find somebody else and there'll be something else, but it won't yeah. be what us and yeah. it won't be the same. And so I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Like that, that never... It, it doesn't you don't replace people you just yeah. you just go on to something else but that that place in their heart always kind of belongs to them yeah yeah it's, it's a different way of saying the same thing yeah i i think that i i mean i like yours in the sense that it it sounds a little more ownershipy yes and but uh, again we are dealing with like learning how to not do that so f- for us that was like a step in the right direction absolutely and and it's we're also talking yeah. about MS right now. So yeah, very true. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> like, ownership is not necessarily unhealthy That's true. in some contexts. And so I'm currently, like, working on developing another re- MS relationship, or DS relationship, dominant mm-hmm. submission relationship. Uh, Which still has a power dynamic, is still power exchange, but is not ownership of a person. Yeah. But I have to be really careful because I've been doing this for 20 years, and he's less than a year. Oh, geez. So me taking over a dominant role with a person who has no experience is in, it's irresponsible and it's not okay so it's it's been a process of kind of like letting him figure out where what? it goes for him right and as he's like i think i would like to try this and so we try that thing and so it's more of right now more of an exploration so it's not there is ds components that we've agreed to um but it's really careful because that yeah. that kind of experience, right? But then sometimes I step outside of master slave stuff, and like I went to Mast, which is masters, masters and slaves, slaves together. together. Um, <laughs> I went to that meeting last week, and they were talking about behavior modification and change and like punishment and discipline and stuff like that. I really struggle with the concept of disciplining a partner. Oh, I I I don't know that I can do right? that. Like I had such a hard time as a master with to the point where. We, mom, my slave wanted to do obedience training and we did obedience training and, and it was good. And a hundred percent of it was for them. It wasn't for me. Like I don't get fed by controlling people. I don't either. The ownership, I think for me, and I really haven't unboxed this as much as I probably could have considering that I've been out of this relationship for years and I just haven't fully processed through it because you know, it is painful, Mm -hmm. um, or can be very painful. Um, where was I? talking about obedience training I just I I think for me the piece that feeds me the most is the mentorship is the protection is the love is the intimacy and there is something ludicrously intimate about being owned because if there's no malice 
and it's something you enter consensually, there is something about the juxtaposition of consent and ownership that just does weird things to my brains. Mm-hmm. I just, it's awesome. Yeah. It's intoxicating. It's something to watch out for. It's something to be careful with. It's so many things and it's so complicated. It's like I said, it's its own podcast. Yeah. With the um, with that meeting I went to, I was sitting outside of myself a little bit going, why do we do this? Like, I, occasionally <laughs> I, I question, like, why are we doing this? Like, I just don't understand. Sometimes sometimes I can't even understand my need for it, right? right. Like, I know I need it. I know it's a part of my life. Right. And yet sometimes I stand outside going, this is crazy. Like, who am I to who am I to control somebody else? Who am I to right. make decisions for their life? Who am I to totally. change their behavior be- for my needs? Yeah. And I actually went over to my partner's house after that meeting. I'm like, why is this okay? Like, yeah. what is it about? It okay? Help me understand yeah, how help I'm feeling. For you. Your like, needs. Yeah. And he said, I said, how did, like, I asked him, like, how does it help you if I punish you or discipline you or um, correct your behavior? Yeah. And he said, because when you do it, it ends. When I do it, it doesn't. Oh, and, that just slays me. Right? I actually had to write that down. I'm like, I need Ooh. to write that down because I got to process that later because cause he punishes himself way more than I ever will. And I am. I resonate so hard with that. It gives him the permission to put it down. Yes. Like my mistress has said, I have been punished. Yeah. I can let go of this yeah. and move forward in my life. And who doesn't want that? Oh, my God. So, yeah. you know, I, I learn every day. And he's, like I said, he's a year in. And you've been doing this 20-odd years. Yeah. And you still learn every day. Yeah. And you're still committed to being really careful about the ethical nuances. I think that's important. You have to be. I mean, and I think any master that's been in the community consistently having slaves going to mast is someone who is going to be ethically concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and then in my, my relationship with the man that I live with, like I said, he, we do MS, not MS, sorry, we do mast, um, masochistic stuff and he's a sadist. SM. SM. SS. Oh, God. SM. SM. He hits me. Okay. Let's go with that. Um, Which is technically impact. Impact play. Not necessarily SM. True. But so I will. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to mince words with you. Anyway. Just to keep people like on track or listening. <laughs> so, but in, in that situation, there is no power dynamic really. Right. But occasionally we play with it because um, I, I let him. Uh, we. Mm-hmm. So there's a concept of switch. Um, which means that somebody enjoys both topping and bottoming. Or both sadism and masochism, or both doming and subbing, and you can switch from one side of the slash, because you usually write it D slash S yep. or M slash S to the other side. And so there is a negative connotation in our community about switches and how they're basically just attention sluts or whores, and they just want to like to experience everything, or they can't make up their mind. It's the whole bisexuality, <clears throat> selfishness, garbage. Exactly. And it should just die in a dumpster fire. <laughs> so I have a hard time talking about the relationship I have with another dominant because ah. I get tagged as a, as a switch I see, based like, on that quote, particular... not a real dominant, exactly. et cetera, et cetera, all that nonsense, and which I imagine hits you harder as a femme-presenting dom. Yeah, and I know that's one of your questions later, so we don't necessarily need to get to that now. <laughs> sure. Um, but we will, because it does impact. But Talk about it, yeah. I, 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 um, in in terms of my relationship with Scott, mm-hmm. he hits me and I like I enjoy that I enjoy pain but we kind of play a little bit with the daddy baby girl role okay which on some levels is pretty much the same thing because he likes as a as a DS relationship because he likes to take care of me and so my slave likes to take care of me and my daddy likes to take care of me right I'm still kind of getting the same need fed just fed just in different contexts it's packaged differently it's framed slightly differently but the 
but fundamentally the needs and the exchange is similar. Exactly. And because I'm in a relationship with an equal, who, who sometimes we play with a bit of power right. dynamics, when I'm weak, which is rare, he's a shield. Right. Um, because I'm like a force of nature sometimes. And because I have of that, this. <laughs> because of that, when I crash, I crash hard. Right. And as I've told you before, I, I take personal insults really badly. Like for all that I do, I have, I don't have a very thick skin and it's hard to believe, but I believe you, <laughs> but nobody sees that because I go right. to him right. and I unleash all that with him and he protects me. Right? right. So when you talked about, you know, protection and, and yeah. that kind of thing, I kind of think that maybe you would be a really good, like daddy Dom type person because it's a nurturing thing, right? Interesting. You're allowed I to nurture somebody that. instead of owning them. Cause I, huh. I've often said that I won't, there's only been two people that I've bottomed to in my life, and both times it's because I believe they're stronger than me. And that's, that's a big statement, because I'm really strong. Yeah. And knowing what I know about Scott, he is as strong or equally as strong as me. He just has to, he's had to use that strength in different ways. Right. I see his strength. It's just about. And I trust his strength. And mm -hmm. so because I see it and recognize it, I can let go with him. I right. can, I can let my guard down and let him take care of me in ways that I don't generally do with anybody else. Um, so there is, in, is there, there isn't really a power dynamic, but there is, but there is, and, and but it's, it's so nuanced because right. it's not, I don't give up any power to him, but when I'm powerless, he's powerful. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And um, that's part of what power exchange is, 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 is having that ebb and flow. And yeah, I've been kind of, and I'm going to digress here briefly. Sure. So keep me honest. Uh, I've been, I've been touching on this idea of a window of tolerance in therapy, which is where you talk about, um, hyper arousal and hypo arousal, arousal here being used in the psychology definition, not in the colloquial, like sexual arousal definition. So what I mean by that is like how excited your brain is. And I don't necessarily mean excitement in a positive sense. I mean like how almost energetic or frenetic or agitated your brain is. Mm -hmm. So typically we think of anxiety as a hyper arousal state and we think of depression as a hypo arousal state. So when you dip below that window of tolerance, you're sort of in more of a depressive area. And if you peak above that window of tolerance, you're kind of in more of an anxiety area. And as a person who deals with both depression and anxiety, Fortunately, less and less now. Um, going to counseling has been amazing. It's really helped equip me with the tools I need to do emotional self-regulation. And mm -hmm. all kinds of amazingly good things have come out of that in terms of realizations about myself. But I'm starting to think that a lot of these types of power exchange that do tend to be more, um, have more of a power disparity or gap where you switch... I'm starting to wonder if there's a connection between um, like traumatic or adverse childhood experiences that lead to a little bit more dysregulation. And I don't mean to in any way pathologize or stigmatize kink. I just have been wondering about that piece in my life about, am I doing this in part because I tend to have higher highs and lower lows? And does kink help me lead a more functional, healthy life? Mm -hmm. I'm curious what your thoughts are and reflections on your life. And well, comparison. I want to be really clear, though, there's no connection between pathology of abuse yeah. in childhood and, and interest in BDSM. Absolutely. We, we and I, feel, I just want to make that really yes, clear. I'm sorry. I should have also made that <laughs> you, really You did, clear. but I wanted to reiterate it. Thank you. Um, I, I, I see what you're saying, and I, I think it, it's, it can be possible, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, 
And I am talking specifically about really intense forms of power exchange rather than like kink or BDSM as a whole. And again, I don't want to pathologize MS yeah. as necessarily having anything to do with child abuse. And, and, and maybe I don't engage in that kind of uh, power exchange because mm-hmm. I'm uncomfortable with, because I'm a caretaker, I'm uncomfortable with putting someone in a situation where they can't function without me. That right. that doesn't I don't that doesn't work for me. I need right. functioning adults in my life yep. because I don't have room for more children. And <laughs> I find yeah. that DS relationships can be that kind of relationship. Like I'm never going to tell somebody what to wear. I'm never going to yeah. tell them when to cut their hair, how to brush their teeth. Like I, I just I'm not prepared to take on that kind of role. Yeah, I need an I need an adult in my relationship. Um, and, and I mean, in fairness, let's not stigmatize people who do that because I've definitely been in control of people's hairstyles and it can be really Yeah, fun. no, I'm just saying for me, I don't, I don't have the capacity. Sure, sure. I, I just simply do not. And, and I have it, three children. And I don't it have the can be exhausting. Yeah, and it's not enjoyable for me. Sure. Um, my kink or my DS yeah. always involves what they're willing to give up, what they're willing to give me. Mm-hmm. I take what they offer. I rarely take what, they, what I want. Oh, um, interesting. That's how I operate because that, that's mm-hmm. how I feel... I can keep my consent practices clean yeah. for one thing. Yep. Um, and it, it makes it tailored to the submissive. Yeah. So, uh, so there's almost an element of service in that. Yes. Almost. Yes. Depending I was on the actually going to say that because of the questions I said, I, I probably won't be able to answer that question because you're right. It's probably true. Sure. Uh, and what I, what I get out of DS relationships is not the same thing that my submissive gets out of the DS relationship. Right. And as long as my need is being fed, then I'm happy to like kind of work with what their needs are, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And and the, the it, for me, in my experience, when they give me something, they give it 100%. Mm-hmm. When I demand something, I have to occasionally, often force it. And I don't want to be... Because then I, then I feel like I'm back to the child parent relationship right and i don't want to be in a situation with anybody where i feel obligated to maintain something right and you're worried that if you do demand something and they don't want to give it up you either surrender the illusion of control which can ruin a a relationship that is otherwise really good for that other person yeah so it's all about picking and choosing really carefully what requests or demands you make yeah yeah because if i have to force it then i'm not enjoying it yeah Right, so it's it, work. It has to be, yeah, and I'm I don't have the time or patience for that yeah. kind of dynamic or interest. It's right. not the kind of DS I want to do. I want somebody to surrender to me. Right. That's yeah, and what there I are want. so many different flavors of DS and MS, yeah. master slave. So, and there's some people who want to be beaten down, and I just that, that's not a good match for me. Right. Because I I I worry about abuse, and I worry about a right. lot of things. And again, I just don't have the bandwidth or the capacity to, to micromanage somebody. Right, whereas so, someone who gets fed by that type of interaction might specifically be a good match for yeah. people like that. So, I mean, my, my, my particular brand is like queen and knight. That's, okay. For me, that, that's more what I Got you. feel like. I feel like I control the universe, and I have a lot of people who support me doing that. And, and that's kind of how I, how I view my DS. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Did I answer the question? I'm, I'm not sure, but I think so. <laughs> I was going to ask um, how you manage the separation of being a mother with children, because you did bring up, I already have enough children, I do not need more, um, with having master-slave relationships, for example, or DS. Um, because we, we made it, we talked about this a little bit in the Polly podcast mm-hmm. that we did, or the non-monogamy podcast. And I'm just curious, is it the same sort of deal with kink? Yes and no. I mean, my relationships... Um, the long-term slave that I owned for six or seven years, they 
interacted with him, they had no idea he was right. my slave. Right. They just assumed he was a guy who did things for me. And sure. Now that my children are older, because my daughters are in their 20s, right. they find it fascinating that I have people who do things for me all the time. They're like, how, how do you manage this? Pretty much. And they're like, can you get somebody... Now they're like, can you get somebody to do that for us? That's adorable. It, yeah, it's kind of funny that way. Or... And and when they were older and started to recognize that it was a DS relationship, they're like, could you get so-and-so to come over and do this thing for me? Could you? And so my slave would drive my children to appointments and stuff like that. So oh, they, my goodness. They kind of got the gist of it. Um, I love how when they're old enough to exploit your slaves. They absolutely took advantage of that. Got you. Yeah. So that's how you balance being yeah. <laughs> a separation <laughs> of being a mom. How did your slaves feel about that? They just took it as another act of service yes. and were happy to do it for you. Yeah. And they, they liked it. This, this particular person liked it because the more he could see me, the happier he was. And, and being in my house was closer to me. Like, just being in my space was closer to me. Kind of sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And then in terms of, like, and now my children kind of explore a lot of the stuff. My daughter, my older daughter and her partner identify as DS. She's a submissive to her partner. Uh, and I think my other daughter maybe identifies as submissive. I'm not sure, but there is definitely kink and DS components in their relationships. Mm -hmm. And so it's, there's, I mean, there's kind of no separation on some levels, but multiple relationships. I mean, they have to be aware of them. You have, you can't lie. And it becomes obvious that you're lying at a certain point as well. But when they're younger, I I mean, we'd have girls or people sleep over sometimes. Sure. And they're like, well, where does she sleep? I'm like, well, where do your friends sleep when they sleep over? Yeah. In your bed? Yeah, of course. My girlfriend sleeps over in my bed too. And yeah. kind of just like play it off as it's nothing. Yeah. Age appropriate. Yeah. Like you don't have to go into detail about anything if you don't want to, but you also don't have to lie to your kids. Like there is, there is a middle ground. But I also feel that it limits, limits the rituals you can do in your home. Right. Um, Cause I don't, I don't expose my children to that right. stuff. Rituals would have to be outside of the home or in the bedroom, right. which really limits the kinds of things you can do. So my, when I was married, uh, my husband was my slave and I didn't make him wear a collar, for example, because that, mm-hmm. to me, is inappropriate. That puts my kids in a situation where they have to be exposed to something that they're not sure. part, a party, part of. So right. he would wear his collar at night when we were sleeping, and that was it. Those kinds of things is limiting. Got you. I, I experimented with subtle collars, um, which I think is easier to get away with on femme-presenting slaves. Mm-hmm. But there are, a lot of, there are a lot of subtle collars that you can potentially get away with during the day as jewelry that may not work on male-bodied slaves as well. My current submissive is called, wears a collar. Okay. Um, I don't call him my slave because we don't, we like I said, you're in. Not that dynamic. It's, it's, yeah. Well, I, it could be one day, sure, but not but yet. today because yeah. he's not even, he's not even a year in. Yeah. But, and the collar that I gave him was supposed to be temporary. <laughs> it was supposed to be one of those, you know, you I've can, done that before. You can wear it when I'm not around and you're feeling insecure or, you know, I'll ask you to put it on and then I put it on and it never came off. So it's now it's just there. And that's lovely and it's perfect, but it And it fits your current situation. It does. Maybe not a best practice. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I I generally don't call her for years like with right. my first a uh, couple slaves. It took years before they mm-hmm. earned a collar because it's sure. a big commitment. It's supposed to be like marriage. It's supposed to be a lifetime. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to. I don't want to ever give somebody the impression that it's a collar is insignificant somehow, or to take away from the reverence of what that commitment means. Yeah, and I don't want to be seen as a person who gives them, takes them away over and over again, or just minimizes that dynamic because it's important. Yeah, I've made so many mistakes practicing master-slave relationships over the years. Yeah, it, and that's why we call it a practice. Yeah, <laughs> that's why we call it a practice. 
That's, that's good. I'll have to remember that. That's why we call it a practice. Mm -hmm. So taking a needs-based approach, what sort of needs do you find that master-slave and dominant submission that those power exchanges meet for you? I'm a control freak. That's a big part of it. Um, so you do just find that being in control is, is satisfying. It just is it safety? Is it what? What needs is it meeting? For it's you? necessary for me. Uh, I don't. I have trust issues. It's a big part of it. Okay. So I don't trust that unless I'm controlling everything. I don't think anything's going to get done. Right. And that's been my experience that unless you're micromanaging, I micromanage way less these days. But. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you seem extremely hands-off. Like, often you just set a deadline for when when is the latest point you're willing to be disappointed that something didn't happen, and then you just action it after that point. And I think that's the best coping strategy ever. But that's a learned thing. Right. I, I, never, I didn't used to be like that. I just used to do everything by myself. Now right. I, I, give, I leave room for people to fail mm -hmm. or succeed. Right, which is good. You I mean, have to at some point. I leave room for delegation. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the, sorry, the back to the Oh, question. the question was about a, a needs-based approach. So talking more about like NBC, compassionate communication. What sorts of families of needs do you get met? Uh, the, definitely the control and the, um, the lack of battle zones. <laughs> when you're in a DS relationship, it's, you generally are going to have them uh, give in or... Comply. Oh, interesting. So there's there's a sense that conflict resolution is easier for you as a dominant partner. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, it definitely comes out of my childhood. My parents had a lot of conflict. My yeah. first sexual experience was sexual assault. Um, so you just, you learn to, um, if, you, if you control your environment, you can't get hurt. And mm -hmm. so my response to sexual assault and rape type things was to end up only dating submissive men because right. they don't generally fight back right and so you find or, yourself or fight yeah and, or they just and they acquiesce so you find yourself in relationships where you're not really being challenged uh on I any mean. kind of level and mm -hmm. you can just which has its own downsides because then you can just roll over people and you don't ever have to learn any bad behavior right uh, or learn how to correct any bad behavior because they're just going to put up with it right uh and which is a huge danger it, as, a, it, as a master yeah and yeah. and as a human being like, yeah it makes you a shitty human being totally it can it, yeah it did <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah it, it did and, and which you. is why it's it's been interesting being in a relationship with another person that i can see as an equal right because he doesn't put up with my shit at all yeah. And and I don't I didn't know how to function in that environment. It took me a long time to accept that other people had rights and autonomy and the ability to say no. Right. Uh, because I just got used to dating something that didn't threaten me. Right. And I like that you specifically said something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes slaves choose to be dehumanized and prefer to be referred to even with it pronouns. Mm -hmm. Like it just depends on the relationship. Yeah. Yeah, we live in a very interesting, complex world with lots of very fun interactions that sometimes are challenging to keep on the healthy side. And often people that are the healthiest have the most colorful past as to how they got there. And I think that holds true in mon mainstream monogamous relationships just as much as, as in alternative relationships. Mm -hmm. But I think on the flip side, it's been really good for me because then you can engage in relationships with people who will take care of you, right? Being yeah, which can be very nurturing. Mm-hmm. There we go. Needs for nurturance. Yeah. yeah, very true. Needs for emotional safety. Needs for physical safety. Mm -hmm. All those come up in my mind. And and they are willing to explore the kind of kink play that I like. Right. Because I, I'm a sadist, so I need somebody who can be an outlet for that. Good segue into my question about sadism. 
how do you find sadism feeds you? It's everything, to be quite honest. It is everything. Yeah. That is that is simultaneously like rich and decadent like a chocolate cake and also the most sadist thing ever said by a sadist. It is everything. Like that's just so perfect. It, it yep. I have always known that I was a sadist since I was a child. I've always known I was I was that kid and I was not happy about being that kid because I was religious. The religious right. upbring, upbringing was not consistent with the way that I felt and the way I processed things and the way I looked at the world. Yeah. Um, my mom babysat other kids, and I was always the person who tied them up. And of course, always. You're <laughs> not we, the only person ever. When we say did that. Um, cops and robbers, I was always the cops. When we played, <laughs> you know, cowboys and Indians, I was always the cowboy. Um, it was all the like you sit over there now. You have been defeated. You have been bested. Mm-hmm. Um, Let me revel in your tears. We weren't allowed to have Barbies because my parents didn't like Barbies, but occasionally sure. we got them from other family members who, you know, basically, I don't agree with you, so I'm going to buy them Barbies anyways. Got you. Um, I was the kid who, like, hung up the Barbies in my closet and whipped them with with bracelets, like the plastic jelly bracelets that they used to have when I was a kid. Those hurt? I used hurt. to whip them in, yep. When I was processing my parents' divorce, I used to fall asleep imagining um, beating somebody to the brink of death and then bringing them back to life and doing it over again and over again and over again. That was my coping strategy for the pain that I was dealing with. Wow. Um, And my first sexual experience was at the um, Wax Museum in Victoria because they have a torture chamber section. Oh. I was about 12, and we went on a field trip. And I was like, this is the best fucking thing ever. Oh, I okay. was so... I wasn't like, sure how that story was going to end. I know, but I'm I was really like glad to hear so it. enamored. No, it was... Well, at that point, it was so confusing, right? Right. you're 12, and this is not normal. And, like, right. pe- human bodies being cut well, I mean, in half it, with knives. And it, like is, it, is some, it is somewhat normal. Like, when you said, I was that kid, I instantly recognized that everyone who's been a child before, which is everyone, knows the one quote-unquote asshole in the class that just likes hurting people. But I never hurt people. That's the thing. Oh, interesting. I I was, because I'm a control freak, right? Right. Type A personality. I would never hurt anybody. Um, I just, I had to suppress it because it was wrong. Right. Like, wrong on so many levels. And yet, we normalize it for men. Yeah. Oh, Billy's just pulling her pigtails. He just likes her. Like, hmm, he's yeah. hurting her. He just likes her. And that's normal for men. But somehow for you... Well, also, when I say somehow, I'm obviously downplaying you're a woman and a Mormon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, they're... Yeah. That yeah. was all I wanted to say. It was yeah, just that we normalize yeah. it for men. Totally. So it was it was definitely something I hid. But, yeah, that experience in there was like, there is something seriously wrong with me. Because I was getting off on the fact that people were trapped in cages with spikes. And, like, it was it was, it was was everything. I never made the connection until more than a decade later. But when I was 11, 12 as well. I, in fact, maybe even, maybe even when I was, like, 8 years old. Because it was... I remember being... I remember sitting on the floor of my room. And I had one of those maps. One of those, like, flat maps mm-hmm. that has the, the streets and the buildings, police station. And you have little, like, toy cars you drive around on the roads. Like... Yeah, like seven, eight years old. And I remember having some pretty messed up, like, torture um, torture narratives that just wove their way into the normal role play. Because whether I had seen it on TV, I'm not sure what it was, but all these torture narratives got woven in. And then as I got older, hitting, like, 10, 11, and I didn't really play with it anymore. It was kind of, like, in the corner of my room. I remember busting it out and just, just, to, just to sort of, like go through more of these narratives and all of a sudden there were all there was all the sexual torture 
undertoning and what was really fascinating was a lot of it put me at the center of the torture it was a very masochistic Mm -hmm. um sort of exploration but it was more masochistic in the sense of humiliation and degradation it wasn't i mean there was always pain involved because for some reason that was humiliating or degrading to me um but it's really fascinating when i didn't realize i was kinky i just assumed that you know i had an unhealthy childhood and i had all these really unnormal or abnormal thoughts Mm -hmm. And I had all these, like, all the shame and stigma that I carried around with it, and I, and I definitely thought, like, that goes in the abnormal category of stuff I need to work on. It doesn't relate to my sexuality. And then, you know, fast forward 13, 14 years, I was, I think, 25, 26 when I first decided to support my then roommate who was going to this thing. He'd done volunteering, because if you volunteer with MBK, you get free admission, and at least then he had done enough volunteering for two free admissions and we were under the impression I could get in for free and the person at the door let me in for free so so um <laughs> I say that only because both of us work with MBK or volunteer with MBK and I don't believe that's our policy I don't believe you're supposed to be able to get other people actually in for free. we do let people oh we do we okay do, good yeah, in which case happens. we weren't breaking the nope, rules we weren't breaking the rules amazing um <laughs> And I remember knew you. I remember you coming into the scene. It was Yeah. With no experience whatsoever. Didn't yeah. know what I was doing. And I was there for emotional support reasons only. I wasn't going for me. Because he which, dropped out and you stayed. That's right. Yeah. I also played with two people that night. <laughs> played with two people on my first party. And not a best practice. Nope. Of course, both of those people went on to become professional sex educators. <laughs> Interesting. And kink educators. Interesting. Not that I'm saying this was their finest, shiniest moment. <laughs> but I had a great experience. So it's one of those ends known just by the means, but also dem ends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I honestly had no idea I was kinky coming to that party. None whatsoever. None, none of that was a hint to me in my early life. And it wasn't until I did a lot of processing that I started looking back because I started asking myself, oh, this environment feels natural. These people feel accepting. I like it when I'm in that space. What's going on for me? And I got to practice some self-awareness. And that eventually led me to this journey of when was my earliest kinky thought? No, it was earlier than that. No, it was earlier than that. I was playing with cars pre-pubescent. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. I probably am just kinky. Like I think I've been kinky my whole life. Yeah. And when I was an adult, too, I found out that my dad tried to get my mom to sl- sign a slave contract at some point. So my dad is apparently kinky. We've never talked about it. But apparently huh. it can be, you know, it, it can be involved. Yeah. Multiple Interesting. generations. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, of course, the nerd in me is super curious about, like, what links can we find multiple generations in terms of kink proclivities? At the same time, I wonder, especially with you speaking about one of your children also being involved in the lifestyle. They're both involved. Oh, they're both involved in the lifestyle. Yeah. Um, do you not have three children? I do. My son's only 16, though. Oh, right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah. So both of the children that are of age <laughs> exactly, <laughs> are involved. And yeah. when I say of age, I'm, of course, speaking of kink age, not of age of sexual consent, which is technically 16 in Canada. I know that's probably a scary thought for you. I'm just He's already sexually active. Okay. Well, I mean, hey, you're an awesome parent for having that conversation and, and being aware of the things happening. So oh, I'd rather, yeah, know than not know. Yeah. My dad did something similar where he said, you know, like, I don't care how screwed up the situation is, what drugs are being done at said party, how late it is, how much you have lied to me. I do not care. If you ever need a ride home from anywhere, call me. I don't care if it's four or five in the morning. Wake me up. Call me on the phone. I will come get you. You just have to tell me you want no questions asked. I will give you the ride. I do not want you getting into a car with someone drunk. And ever since that day, I have never gotten into a car with someone drunk. And it's just like, yeah, yeah. 
that's that's what I would like for my kids too. Yeah, like to this day, I still think that was one of the best parenting things that he ever did. I was like, wow, like looking back now, I'm like, yeah, if I ever have kids, that's like number one on my list of things to do. Like, two yeah. weeks before my son moved in, because he just moved back in recently, he uh, I was moving stuff in his room because we were trying to like sort some stuff out, and I picked up a bag and it made all the rattling noises. I'm like, oh god. So I opened this bag and there was two 26ers in there and four coolers and a little tin of pot. And I'm like, oh, this is a conversation I wasn't ready for. <laughs> so I get it. But, you know, I, open communication with your kids meant I was able to have that conversation. Right. And now I know how much he's using instead of trying if, to prevent him from using because right. he's going to do it anyways. Yeah. And so, the more that you don't allow them a safe space to do the, the – the, I don't want to say shitty behaviors, but, like, the things that could potentially get them into trouble, yeah. the more they're going to do those things to get into trouble in spaces that are really unsafe for yeah. them. Because he's learning how to drive, right? And, I, right? and now I don't ever want to be in a situation where he's driving high. So it's very clear, like, these are the guidelines. Right. If you get high, I'm not taking you driving. Yeah. Like, it's that simple, but you can't have those conversations if you're hiding from them. Right. You can't have those conversations if your kid's not allowed to do those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Hmm. I was going to ask, is there an element of service for you in sadism, which we will skip because it's clear that it's very well, feeding for you. But, but please yeah, do but we, we like. did kind of touch on it, too. That, mm-hmm. Like, is there service? Yes, because I receive the, the, I receive the, do- the submission they want to provide. So in uh, some ways right. I am providing that service. But that's service. more power exchange. That's more if you're being a dom yeah. versus like if you're actually hitting them and they're just getting really... There's occasionally times that I do it in terms of, like, we do Taste of Kink, for example. Sure. And for four sure. hours, I provide an experience. Yeah, um, and that's when, very much a service. Yeah. When we do yeah. Taboo, I flog people generally for four hours, give them, like, tasters. So yeah. in that sense, yes, but that's not feeding me. That's yeah. providing a and service. And when we say for four hours, we mean in, like, three to five minute tasters. Yeah. Continuously with lots of different people. We don't mean one person no. for four hours. No. Over and over and over, you have different people. At that point, build a machine. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> my back is not going to last that long. And I know there will be flogging experts that will criticize my technique. I'm, I'm sorry if I step forward sometimes. It happens. No, nobody, nobody should tell you how to do kink right because there's no right way to do That's kink. That's true. But I've definitely received excellent instruction on how to do kink more sustainably for my back. And I actually do really appreciate that. Well, that works. Okay, so that I was sense. kind of making a joke at my own expense in the whole like. Well, I have chronic back pain and my right shoulder is in disaster because of my car accident. And oh. it has been, it's actually... If I do some yoga and I do some stretching and I roll out on the ball, yep. I can take quite the beating on that shoulder. If I don't, not happening. No dice. Yeah. Um, but that that beating, like him punching me, is actually the best therapy for my shoulder. Sometimes gets a lot of blood into the tissue. Yeah. It's funny how it's like backwards. The thinking is backwards. When I do a lot of um, rough body play, one of the things I like doing is myofascial release style massage. I'm careful to add the word style in there because I'm not trained as an RMT. I have no professional skills as an RMT, but I do enjoy myofascial release um, techniques and things things like that, or my attempt at them. It again to my understanding, brings blood into the tissue. It's it's actually pretty good for people's bodies, and it's really painful. I've so, watched you do it. And and there's some, <laughs> there's some appeal, because maybe because I was always the small boy in class, maybe because as a man, I, I haven't become super ripped and huge. I don't feel like I have an intimidating presence, even though I'm sure sometimes I probably do. I just have never had the feeling or experience of being a super space-takey-up mm-hmm. kind of human that's just powerful, I guess, in a sense, or commanding. Those aren't words that I think of in myself, even though I know that there are people that would possibly describe me as such. So I've always reveled in the, in the, 
in that sneakiness of doing something extremely painful that looks effortless. Mm -hmm. There is something about sitting in the corner of a dungeon unassumingly and just doing something very consensual that's extremely painful with a masochist and either getting them off to the point where all the scenes around me are looking over their shoulder in that cheaty kind of way of like, I, I swear I'm paying attention to you. Also, what is that person doing? No, I'm paying attention to you. I really am. And and you know, because as a top, you've probably done it at some point where you've glanced at another scene and you know you're not, I mean, you haven't really talked about you shouldn't glance at another scene. But there's always that little bit of like, if you're making people glance, there's a point of pride there. And there's something about being totally unassuming and just doing myofascial release and having someone scream bloody murder at the top of their lungs. And again, consensually, mm-hmm. a person who wants a scene where they're screaming. And, and just have them be like, what is he doing? Like, how is that human just about at death? He looks like he hasn't moved an inch. Yep. So there's something about myofascial release that's just incredibly gratifying totally. for me as a sadist. And, and I think, and not even as a sadist, but as a kinkster, it's fun to create a scene. Oh, like yeah. It's create, to make people watch you. It's actually kind of exhilarating. There's the exhibitionism aspect for sure. Yeah, and the, the shits and giggles too, right? Like, it's not always <laughs> supposed to be serious. Like, we talk about DS and Masters and Slaves, but it is supposed to be fun and entertaining. And that is the favorite part about Scott and I. Like, we top together as well. And we do all kinds of fucked up shit. Um, <laughs> including like we we get the, like the Hulk gloves from Toys R Us and like hit amazing, people with, amazing because it's fun and you should be having fun. Nigel. I've seen I've seen Mr. Xanthine beat someone with a rubber chicken, yes, right? And it's just it's it's a riot. Like the scene takes over half of the dungeon. People can't stay serious in their scenes. Almost, yeah. It's a disruption, which again consensual because people know when they go into a dungeon, sometimes scenes are going to be the rubber chicken scene, mm-hmm. and people are just like, please be advised, do not do a scene that it would be catastrophic if someone walks next to you with a rubber chicken and whacks yeah. someone with it. Well, and the juxtaposition of the scene that you did at West Coast Bound that one year when you were doing myofascial release and yeah. we were doing the play right beside you and she was <laughs> on the floor screaming and we had this like totally <laughs> playful, messed up scene right beside you. That Like the juxtaposition in that room was, was, was fun. I couldn't help watching you. I, I probably looked over my right? shoulder more than Because we, we had a husband and wife couple tied together okay. and had them against the wall and said, okay, we're going to hit you until you give up your pot your spouse oh right and so they they were like holding on to each other and like sh- taking it as long as they could and like i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry and then flipped around and we would start wailing on the other one and they would like flip so i mean that that sounds like a really fun scene it was a good scene in the um in the context of of again for everyone listening because i'm sure there are people that are like how could that ever be consensual um, it depends on how you define give up your spouse. <laughs> yes, they were both masochists. They were both enjoying it. Awesome. But they both, yeah, we would, yeah, they, they had to. It's, 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 and you know what? There's an incredibly intimate bonding experience about being in the pit with someone. Yeah, and surviving like, it together. Suffering with someone mm-hmm. is an incredibly joining and connecting experience. Yeah. And, and that can't be overstated in the context of being a partnership under siege from these, you know, consensual This other partnership. Plant. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Right. We're reveling in it, yeah. It was good times. I, I, I can't help but imagine there was amazing swingery sex after that. No, actually. There was not? No. Well, that's also wonderful. And yes. again, focusing on intimacy. But there was part of my mind that was like, that just sounds like diffusing that tension with sex would have been like we the hottest sex totally ever. We should have done that, actually. We've never actually played with him sexually. <laughs> Interesting. Again, a lot of pre-negotiation yeah. and consent. <laughs> totally. Sometimes you find yourself whacking someone with a chicken before you've talked about how aroused they are by funny things happening. And then you're like, oh, well, we can't do anything because I really should have negotiated this before you were totally drunk on the endorphins from uh-huh. doing the scene. 
It's interesting too because when I was a child, I definitely identified as dominant, and then my intro into kink, into the kink scene, was actually all more bottoming stuff because, as a woman, that kind of is how you end up expecting to go. Oof. I, I know. Uh, well, yeah. And and my first real experience with a consent violation was with my first husband, and we were doing. We weren't kinky. Like he wasn't kinky, and. Mm-hmm. And but he he had tied me down to the bed, and I was like fighting. It was like a fake rape scene. I'm like, oh, I'm you. gonna, you know, I'm gonna get away. So and it was supposed to be like consensual non-consent, and then it just turned into non-consent. Oh no, he's like, I know how to make you stop, and he stuck his finger in my ass, and uh, I was like, well, that wasn't something I was. And so that, that just I stopped fighting at that point because I'm like, that wasn't really what I was going for. This isn't what I wanted. And this so isn't... then, kind of, yeah, I went to non-consensual because then he had sex with me, and I'm like, okay, we're done here because that wasn't that wasn't right. cool, right? So that was you were pretty much done at that point of like boundary has been crossed. We didn't negotiate yeah. that in advance. I'm really uncomfortable now. Oh, and now we're having sex. But I didn't have the language for any of that because I hadn't right. actually entered the kink scene at that point. Right. So it was just something that happened. And then when I did yeah. enter the kink scene, it was through a webs through the web personals, <laughs> which is now lava life okay. um, I was <laughs> recently single and I I just added the dominant submission checkbox at the like list of interests and so I had guys contacting me and you want to talk about frenzy <sighs> but I found the kink scene I and was not all of these smart. submissive men that were willing to do these things yeah, but I had them all come to my house with my kids were sleeping oh my like, goodness I was not smart like we sure. all are dumb but the very first new. time was a, was a guy, and he wanted to hit me. I'm like, all right. So you came over, and we played, and, and he gave me a safe word. I'm like, there's no bloody way I'm safe wording. Cause I'm I am. way too fucking strong for that. Mm-hmm. Hence, hashtag bottom frenzy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hashtag new to BDSM. Yeah, so that was my only experience, like, pick up play as a bottom, because I'm like, that's never happening again. And then right. from there, when I went straight to, to, to being a dom. And you deal with all kinds of things. But, it, it, yeah, it was that was that was definitely the kind of the way it went in because that's the way people expect you to do it sure i'm not sure where i was going with that <laughs> and of course as a as a mask presenting um cis man top mm-hmm. i was expected to be a top as soon as i came into the scene and there was a lot of discouragement around bottoming from just other men mm-hmm. and in fact i i've had conversations with people where i literally have talked now that i'm confident about it that i'm a switch that i you know sometimes bottom and you get the same kind of stigmatizing nonsense that you get when you talk to people who are totally unversed in kink the oh I could never do that and it's yeah. like no one fucking asked you to do that like how did you take a conversation where we were just exchanging information and make it all about how you essentially could never do what I do in a way that like they, they clearly aren't saying it because they think it's flattering it's, they're shaming it's shaming yeah. yeah and it's really shitty yeah so yeah I mean and, and of course you get the same thing from some monogamous people anyway when you the second that you mention like oh I'm, I'm non-monogamous because it's come up in conversation because I do not as much as I sometimes I think get a reputation for being very vocal on Facebook I do not go up to new connections and just thrust all this information on them typically it's elicited from me with a question yeah where you say I'm non-monogamous and you get the oh I could never do that or I don't know how you do that. There's just this disbelief and a lot of, and I think a lot of it comes from a genuine place of curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I think that education is so important. And I think the work, the volunteer work that we do at MBK is so incredibly vital. And I, and I don't mean to say this in a self-aggrandizing way, but particularly because people with inclinations towards non-monogamy are likely to do something unethical if they do not have the education as to how to go about it ethically. Yep. And the same can be said for people of inclinations towards kink. I, I see what we're doing as as incredibly important in reducing just really significant world suck. And harm. Yeah. Right? Had I not found kink, 
I don't know what would have happened to me because I was right. suppressing so much rage and yeah. and all of these things and I had no outlet for it because the outlets were all unhealthy. Right. And when you discover kink all of a sudden you're like, I there's nothing wrong with me. Like yeah. it and that recognition, that acceptance, that feeling like like everything you thought everything everybody's ever criticized you for was actually not a bad thing. You just have to learn how to harness it. Yeah. And learning how to harness it made me a better person. And process it and yeah. and express it and honor yourself and to honor the people you're doing it with. And own it, right? Like yeah. for every for everything there's a there's an opposite thing. So be, being a sadist, there are people who will feed that. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with being a sadist as long as I'm ethical about it and as long as I'm not using it to hurt people that aren't doing it consensually. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. <clears throat> so I was going to ask about socialization as a woman to serve others playing out for you in kink, but you answered that really quickly. If you have any comments, you're welcome to Yeah, add. there's... Yeah, uh, we talked a little bit about the switch thing, and I kind of stopped that conversation, but um, I get a lot of... I just haven't found the right man. Oh, jeez. Um, and if I find the right man, then that's I would obnoxious. submit. Um, I'm sorry you deal with that. I it's less now that's good and i <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah I, I mean i think i hold my own i don't think a lot of men would really do that these days but i still feel that i get that uh, sometimes because i bought them and but i also now i'm just in for the shock value i don't really give a damn what people think about me anymore so when i go to parties and bottom people are like what the and <laughs> fun and it was fun for a while because scott lived in victoria and i lived in vancouver and i bottomed in victoria and topped in vancouver so that, everybody yeah. in victoria thought i was a bottom oh and then you could just switch it up and everyone mind their minds yes. would just be blown exactly exactly that's great but then i i discover the, the longer i've been doing it the less i care what people think about me and so i've mm. actually had some really amazing experiences as a bottom doing like bottoming scenes that are, that are cathartic and that I don't think I would have had the opportunity to do. Mm -hmm. um, but being socialized as a woman and a dominant, it's, it's a uphill battle all yeah. the time uh, because people instinctively think that you're less than. Right. And, and it's incredibly frustrating. And my partners deal with a lot of stuff around it too. I don't want to interrupt you. Sorry, go, keep keep going. Just but because I, they're because they're male, right? And right. so they're socialized to be strong, and they're willing to give up their power to a woman. Right. They're also dealing with the stigma of me being a powerful woman. Mm -hmm. So the question I had was around the fetishization or humiliation aspect of a second class citizen being in a position of power, which is something that sometimes arises for some dominatrices um, like yourself that when you especially with clients that there's an underlying notion that why a woman being in a position of power is so humiliating or degrading or why it gets people off comes from a place of believing that women are second class citizens i generally won't play with people who believe that right uh I, humiliation that kind of play isn't something that i i want to deal with same thing with feminization mm -hmm. like i won't play with feminization yeah, forced feminization because and, i yeah. i i i I resent the fact that men would think that dressing up like a woman makes Is, them right. makes them less makes humiliated. I, I think it's totally transparent because it makes them powerful, in my yeah. opinion. Um, yeah. I also am really. I mean, even as a as a woman as a female dominant, I actually have to deal with other female dominants too as a problem because interesting they're they're a bit competitive in some ways, but there's ah. also a huge belief that you have to look a certain way and act a certain way and be a certain way right. uh, to be seen as dominant. 
Right. And I don't play into any of that. I won't. I mean, right. I've tried, but I, I don't look the part. Like, I'm not waif-like. I don't wear leather all the time. I can't fit into, like, the really dominatrix-type outfits. Sure, sure. I don't carry a whip all the time. I don't do my makeup all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't act like a cunt. Or a bitch. <laughs> you, can, you can say that. <laughs> right? Like, I, the, the, I'm just not willing to do that. Yeah. I, I am, but I am forceful in my personality. And the people, the people that are drawn to me are the people that are supposed to be with me. And so I don't sure. ever force my dominance on anybody. And I also mm-hmm. find that a lot of dominance, more men than women, but women are bad for it too, is that they assume that because they're dominant, everybody must submit to them. Oh, that's the worst. And it happens all the time. And there's submissives out there who think they should be submissive to every dominant, and I won't mm, I mean, allow it. I mean, if they, if they get consent, I don't see a problem with that. And they don't. That's right? not, that, yeah, that's somewhat problematic, yeah. Like, I don't let anybody good. call me mistress. Sure. I, I, Honorifics I, are really special. They're special, but they also feel like they, they produce or p- lay responsibility on me that I didn't accept. Right. And so when somebody thinks they can call me mistress, I'm like, I don't own you, and I'm not responsible for you. Right. And, and Therefore, I would prefer if you restrain, refrain from yeah. calling me mistress. Yeah. Um, and, and women in particular are very specific and catty almost about, about dominance. Like, they're... It's it's almost like women are so concerned that they're not going to be seen as dominant that they have to over, overcompensate. Right, and that they're worried that you're making every woman dom look bad somehow. Yeah, I because see. I won't, I I won't see. overcompensate. Because right. I, I know that my power is natural. Right, it doesn't I, I, come from a title. No, and I know that it radiates without me even having to say it. Yeah. I think women, or dominants in general, who say, um, I'm dominant, who feel like they need to say that all the time, really have an issue with internally that they have to kind of work through. I mean, I mean, maybe. That's definitely a possibility. I don't think you need to say it if you are it. That's, that's a very interesting perspective because I, I agree in a sense. There is definitely such a thing as like a natural dominance that people just exude. They just take up space. It, it reminds me a little bit of predator-prey relationships because some people in the community have a predator-prey dynamic mm-hmm. where one person's more of the predator and one person is more of the prey. And there's something unspoken once it's negotiated that they just they just take up space differently and just their body language communicates all of the dominance and submission that it needs to. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely am like hearing that in what you're saying. And there definitely is also um, people that use honorifics as an identity that like coming to kink is part of their double life and they revel in having those honorifics. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is their time when they're not at work where they don't have to be um, you know, pressed collar. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be about not feeling dominant enough or not feeling good enough or not feeling worthy enough. That may be a thing for some dominance. I mean, it certainly is a thing for me. Um, How so? Um, oh, that I struggle a lot with self-worth and like, I know you wouldn't necessarily think it, but I actually struggle a lot with self-worth. Yeah, it is what it is. We all do. Yeah, I, I think that's, um, the older I get and the more people that I know and the more experience I get, the more I think that everyone just struggles with self-esteem mm-hmm. to some extent. Every single counseling session I've ever had has always gone back to the fact that I don't love myself. Oh my every, goodness. Every single issue that I've ever discovered has Preach. always gone back to the fact that I don't love myself. So I, I totally hear you. Yeah, I definitely got a lot of, um, a lot of indoctrination um, in regards to that mm-hmm. at a very young age for many years. And it's like, you, you just experience enough of that being told you're not lovable that no one will ever love you you know like you get that kind of feedback directly from a parent figure and yeah and mine was if you're not perfect you won't be loved oh that's rough yeah yeah Yeah, i got one i got the no woman will ever love you unless you find a sucker like your father found in me wow (laughs) 
it's always worse when you hear the other person's right. Wow, that's pretty bad. <laughs> just think of the like just think of the layers that you that 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 describes of like yeah you might think you've gotten past this baggage but even once you've found someone have you really yeah it's like the amount of doubt that that introduces into a person's mind about love like something that's so important to all people and intimacy i think that's part of the reason why i'm such a nerd about intimacy is i've really had to dissect it dissect it just for myself personally Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yep and I think um, being a dominant woman in a relationship with a dominant man is also challenging mm-hmm. in some mm-hmm. senses because they, he in particular, like it, it it's it, it's a dynamic he's not used to. He's not, a lot of men are used to women who roll over and don't, yeah, so I find that challenging as well in some, and, in some senses. To some extent, I hate to make this observation, I hope that's more generational because Scott is an older gentleman. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I just mean there are certain types of socialization that were more common with parents dealing with how kids were being socialized, say, 40 years ago versus today. I, I, also, I just don't think he knows how to take me. <laughs> like, I really don't because because um, I'm like a hurricane. <laughs> and I often say that, that, I, that I love him and that I let him, I, I let him be my daddy because he can contain the hurricane. Oh, that's right? really sweet. Because that's because that's really what it is. Because we talked about earlier that I did all my relationships with submissive men, and they, I was dangerous in a lot of senses because I sure. had no control over what I was doing, and I hurt people because I was just when when you haven't harnessed your power or your your dominance or whatever it is, your sadism, whatever, if you haven't harnessed that stuff, you yeah. cause harm. Yeah. And. I didn't really learn how to harness it until I had somebody who was equally as stronger or strong, uh, equally as strong or stronger than me in yeah. my life because he says no. And I've never really experienced a relationship with a person who can tell me no Ooh, and mean it and hold that boundary. That's heavy. Right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm a hurricane. I run right over people and I've hurt people a lot because I just didn't understand um, or know how to harness my power. Right. And it took a relationship with somebody who could hold it up for me to figure out my boundaries. And so I'm better for being with somebody who can be as strong as me. Yeah. Um, and hold boundaries really well. Yeah, because being dominant when you don't understand it, it can be really damaging. Yeah. Right? Even in your, in your sibling relationships. Sure. I, was, I always rolled over my sister. And, and yeah. she just learned to just acquiesce. And she learned to just not fight with me. And, and I had a temper that was, was catastrophic. And my children learned that it was dangerous to cross me and you know until you learn how to harness it and then you sort of figure out how to not be that person in relationships and to show up differently for people you love and yeah it's a learning journey right totally yeah so yeah so being socialized female you expect to be passive and you expect to just roll over and you expect to be all these things and i never fit the norm and so how do you i wonder if there's also sorry how do you manage to like continue going on when you don't fit the norm already yeah, it's, it's you're so far off script that mm-hmm. you're writing your own script as you go. So how do you know if what you're doing is unhealthy? Yeah, because and so in, the, in many ways, you're modeling yourself after the men in your life. Right. Which then creates that whole concept of, are you creating toxic masculinity in your own life? Right. Right. It's, it, it's crazy. That's a lot of, that's a lot of genderception yeah. happening. Yeah. Because those are your contemporaries, isn't is men, because there's not a lot of women like me. I also wonder if you were held less accountable based on the hegemonic gender that women are perceived to be not dangerous 
So it's as if when they when they do something that is harmful, it's not really as harmful as if a man did it For sure. because she's harmless. She's just a woman. Like For there's sure. all this hegemonic gender. Absolutely, because I definitely hurt people, mm-hmm. and and the and yeah. the comeuppance wasn't quite there. Yeah, because I didn't know. I didn't. I wasn't aware. And I mean, after the fact, you know, like okay, yeah, I damaged somebody, but what are you gonna do about it, right? Like, yeah. I had to go back and fix some things in my life because I, you you damage people. Yeah. It's it's. Yeah, it's a force to be reckoned with if you haven't figured out how to deal with it. Yeah, and again, this just ties right back into how important education is, how mm-hmm. important destigmatizing BDSM is. The more destigmatized these things are, it's not like new kinksters are going to be born because we stop stigmatizing no. BDSM. It's just that the ones that already exist will get the education they need to be healthy, functional members of the, of society. Yeah, and I think that plays into why I also don't... Uh, take in DS relationships because I think it's one of my control features for myself is that I have to it has to be offered because then I know it's legit and I know it's it's from their heart rather than me running over somebody again mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a way of a check and balance for me yeah that makes sense yeah I'm I'm afraid to be angry in my relationships because I'm genuinely terrified that I'm going to turn out to be as angry as my mom was I'm terrified that the anger that I have I will think that I'm that I'm in a safe space for it, and then at some point that anger will get bigger than the safety of the space, and I'm going to hurt someone, mm-hmm. and and that scares me, like mm-hmm. to the point where I have essentially been entirely detached from anger for probably probably since before I started kink. Let's see, that's not good either. No, like super unhealthy, mm-hmm. um, to the point where it came up in therapy, and you know when your therapist is guiding you towards something that clearly the therapist thinks is obvious. And they're doing everything in their power to do the emotional labor to not make it seem like it's painfully obvious to them. And yet you still kind of get the sense that they've repeat, they've rephrased a question like four times and you're just not getting it. I had that experience around anger, (laughs) but I'm not an angry person. No, clearly I don't Mm -hmm. have issues with anger. And then at a certain point it was like, oh, well, you know, have you considered this? Well, what about this? Have you tried thinking about it like, and I'm like, hmm, she seems to be asking a lot of questions, driving at something that I'm I'm clearly missing, and we keep doing flybys, and there's pointing at the landmark that I'm just like blissfully unaware of in my mental landscape, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh yeah, I still don't see it, but I will do a lot of work trying to see it, and then I could see it, but it, it took like going home, thinking about it, processing that counseling session, not even because I was upset from it. I just was unfazed by it. And mm-hmm. I was like, hmm, this feels off. There's something here I need to discover. So yeah. I did a lot of work, and now I'm aware of the problem. Well, awareness is the first step, right? Yeah. I, I started doing a little bit of work on it at um, Burn in the Forest. But I'm mindful of time, and I'm also right at the precipice of like a long tangent that is unnecessary to this Fair podcast. enough. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for sitting with me and talking about all these incredibly challenging issues and normalizing fallibility in, in leaders in our community. I think it's so important that we're just honest and disclose a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like you said about power. The more we disclose about the mistakes we've made, the more we own it and, and talk about how we're genuinely either apologetic or accountable or working on it. Like, we're aware of the technical difficulties and we're working on the problem. Yeah, like, we're all human. Yeah. 
I think the more we do that, the more it becomes easier and less stigmatized for people that aren't leaders to come forward and be like, oh, maybe I need help too. Oh, this person goes to counseling or this person is dealing with this. Like, maybe I can talk about that with some of my friends. Mm -hmm. Like, getting people to just talk more about the shit that's going really sideways in slow motion. Yeah. Like, they know it's going really sideways, but they aren't going to do anything until it has gone so sideways. You know what I mean? Like, we've all been in that situation where you look at it and you're like, well, this is a train in the process of crashing in slow motion. Yeah. And you do absolutely nothing about it, and it continues to crash in slow motion, and you just don't do anything about it because you don't know what to do. And it's like, the more we can just say, like, hey, if your, if your train is crashing right now, there is help available. Come talk to us. Come talk to anybody. Like, anybody, yeah. Let's just talk about this. Like, reach out. You do not have to do this alone. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Well, thank thank you. you so much. And that ends the session. <sighs>